Welcome to this week's MicroConf Refresh episode. Today, we are doing a MicroConf Refresh episode, looking back just a couple of months to MicroConf Remote, which was the virtual event that we threw back in September. Today, you're going to hear from Colleen Johnson. Her talk is titled Scatterspoke and the Road to 10K of MRR. This talk follows the winding road that Colleen and her husband navigated over the past three years as they built a product that serves a specific need within the Agile community and at the time had brought them to the door of 10K of MRR, $10,000 in monthly recurring revenue. Since then, they've surpassed that, actually. They're a tiny seed batch two company, and they've actually been growing you know, really quickly. But take a step-by-step walkthrough in this talk on the various turns she and the Scatterspoke team took as they slowly made their way to that 10K MRR mark. I hope you enjoy this talk. Um, we're going to dive into our second keynote of the day. And if you recall, our first keynote was from Corinne Pope, and that was on that first stage of getting to launch and having that first sale. The second keynote that we're about to roll into talks about the next milestone that many of you in, uh, in the crowd are trying to achieve. It's 10K MRR. It's the point at where a lot of us can go full-time. We're going to hear from Colleen Johnson. She's an enterprise agile coach, a speaker, a trainer, an entrepreneur. She's the co-founder and the CEO of Scatterspoke. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me on MicroConf Remote today. Thanks for having me here, Rob. Excellent. I'll let you take it from here. From here. All right. Thank you. Well, I do want to disagree with you, Rob, and we can settle this in the in the Q and A. But I do think Mall Rats was probably one of the best movies ever made. So I disagree with the twenty thousand dollar budget. <laughs> okay. Well, let's dig in here. So, what is Scatterspoke? Scatterspoke is a tool for. Um, for online retrospectives, and it's it's built to help agile teams have um, continuous feedback about how they're working, so that they can have honest conversations about what things are working and what needs to improve, and and make adjustments to their process along the way. So when we think about um, retrospectives, they typically look something like this: what didn't go well, what what went well, what didn't go well, what can we improve? They're um, usually done in a room where everybody's together with stickies on the wall and often done on a regular cadence. Um, and for a lot of teams that are running scrum practices, this is an every two week occurrence or at the end of each sprint, you're reflecting back on the sprint and saying, how did this work? What can we change? Um, for teams that are running um, Kanban or maybe longer running intervals, um, they might do this monthly, but it's a chance for the team to all come together and really have an honest conversation with each other. So you might be thinking, that's cool. This is all cool. Why the hell would someone pay for this? Um, which is a, a valid question. Um, you know, I think when, from my experience, and I've been in, in the agile world for 10 years, a little over 10 years in the software industry for over 20, um, it sounds really straightforward. Uh, get everybody together and get everybody talking. But when you think about um, teams, especially teams of software developers, it can be very hard to get great, honest feedback from people. Um, it can be even harder when you think about that interval of time between when something happens and when we get together to talk about it, people forget. Um, we want to sweep those emotions under the rug and not really have a, you know, have an honest conversation about what's going on. Um, so it can be hard to feel like these are having any, you know, any actual impact on how we're working. I think the other piece of this that, that's really important when you think about the tool that we're providing to teams is that you can have the same conversation 
at every retrospective, it can feel a little bit like Groundhog's Day, I'm probably dating myself with this movie reference too. <laughs> so you can end up having this same exact conversation where you're maybe talking about your you know, issues with your CI/CD pipeline, or you're talking about issues with um, with your QA efforts and wanting to move to automation. But if you're doing this every two weeks and you're having the same conversation, it's it's hard to feel like this is a productive use of anyone's time. Um, and what's worse is for a lot of organizations, these these conversations are probably happening in with multiple small teams all at the same time. Everybody's talking about the same similar problems, and we don't have a great way to connect the dots to see how we can improve those, you know, those pain points for the organization. So like Rob said, this story isn't about the tool, it's about the journey and how we got there. Um, you are not mistaken that that first um, image on our timeline here of our road to 10K is a Coors Light can. <laughs> so in um, 2015, my husband and I were hanging out one afternoon, drinking Coors Light in the backyard. And he said, I really want um, to learn more about how to build a real-time app. So I want to learn Node.js and Angular and, and play around with WebSockets. And at the time, I was moving into a consulting position, and I was working with a lot of teams on how to build out a portfolio um, portfolio Kanban system that would help them track things like um, how to do exploratory testing on um, problems and solutions with users before building things. Um, and I said, you know, this sounds this sounds fun. Let's try to, let's try to build something. Um, and it felt like a great way for him to get his hands dirty with the technology he was interested in and for me to really put my money where my, where my mouth was. I was teaching other teams how to do these things, but had never built something on my own. So it was really started with an opportunity to learn. Um, I knew the Agile space really well. And so I knew that there was this need for um, a way to have a retrospective where people could provide feedback anonymously and not be tied to the comments they were putting up on the stickies. And then the other problem I kept seeing was that um, in, in clients I was working with, they would um, constantly reschedule their their retrospectives, especially if they were on a Friday and people were out or they were down to the wire on a sprint deadline. It was the first meeting to always get pushed off. So I wanted to figure out how could we um, how could we build something and test out you know, these new technologies? How could we build something I could use? So it was very selfish that I could use with my clients to help um, make these retrospectives a better experience for, for the teams. Um, so sat around, drank a bunch of Coors Light, um, did exactly what Corinne said and hopped on and tried to buy a domain. <laughs> um, and then we did the very important next step of um, purchasing a shitload of stickers and then nothing happened. <laughs> so I got really focused on consulting um, and used, you know, I continued to use the tool from a coaching perspective. My husband, John, continued to tinker with it and play around with different technologies, but we really didn't do a whole lot with the tool for about a year. Um, it was really cool because it was an opportunity for me to keep using it with people and hear real-time feedback. And I would come home with that and say, you know, people want to be able to vote or want to be able to group on items um, or create an action item. And so we were slowly adding new things, but never, still never really had the intent of turning this into an actual business. It was still just something um, that was for both of us, both of us to learn how to, how to put all of this into practice. So the next step for us um, around 2017, 
um, was actually we started to see that using our Google Analytics that we had a, a fair amount of, of people coming to the site. We, that was all we could track. We didn't have the concept of a user. So we said, why don't we go ahead and create um, a simple way to register before you can access the boards. Still, everything was completely free. There was you know, no charges or credit cards or subscriptions or anything at that point. It was just a way to collect email addresses. Um, and I was the one that was very reluctant to um, have any kind of user registration for the longest time. I wanted to make sure that this was simple to use. I was very scared that if we made it harder to, you know, if we made it harder to get in and, and use the tool quickly, that people would just stop using it. Um, and what we found was quite the opposite. We just saw the, the number of registered users going up and up and up in 2017. Um, we closed 2017 out with about 12,000 users. And um, what was really funny when Corinne was talking about feedback was that year we also installed Drift so that we could look, so we could start to communicate with people if they were having issues, if they had feedback. Like Corinne said, um, we had some really rough feedback there for a while. Probably one of the funniest moments, I think, was like her campfire story. We were sitting around and had somebody pop on and say, um, your UI looks like shit. It looks like it was built by a drunk intern. <laughs> so <laughs> we had some fun moments that, that were a little painful. But um, that combination in 2017 of creating a user account and being able to communicate with users and track users, um, and then also have Drift on the site. So we were getting feedback and understanding what problems they were running into kind of changed everything for us. Um, the funny part about having Drift on there was towards the end of 2017, we had somebody pop on Drift and um, it was kind of uh, creepy at first. They were looking for me specifically and invited me to come speak at um, a big agile conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2018. So we got super excited and we saw this as a way um, to launch a new version of the site that would start to charge. And we used that experience of, of keynoting and being on stage in Brussels as kind of this kicking off point. So that was in February of 2018. So we spent really like the entire holiday season leading up to that, trying to get um, a complete redesign of the site up with new logos, new, just a completely brand new um, interface that we ended up launching um, alongside that Agile conference in Belgium. So we started charging and we kept the free version, but we always, we made it, we made some of the other features basically um, subscription only. And um, when we, when we launched all of this, we were pretty close to 20,000 registered users and we started to see some small conversions. Um, I think at that time, you know, it was like just as many people that would subscribe would cancel a month later. So we were still missing something. And we were continuing to communicate with people through Drift, get feedback about the tool, um, and really start to understand what things were missing. Um, I would say around the same time in 2018, we saw a ton of other retrospective tools start to enter the market and charge. So it was kind of validating for us that this was, this was something that could become an actual business because we were starting to see some competition. Um, we were also pretty excited around you know, the competition that was coming into the space. Uh, took a very different approach to retrospectives than what we were doing. And so it gave us kind of a unique, a uniqueness in the industry. So in 2018, we kind of, we saw a lot of use, uh, usage go up, new accounts coming in. 
um, started to see some of those convert, but it wasn't like we were going to quit our day jobs anytime soon. It was still a very slow growth. And then um, in 2019, I think we were both starting to feel like um, we were, I think we were both just distracted, to be honest. Um, I was leaving my consulting career and starting my own consulting business. My husband was working for um, a big uh, uh, cryptocurrency exchange. And so we were both kind of getting focused in very different places. And I think feeling a little bit like this just wasn't going to work, especially not on nights and weekends. <laughs> Um, and all of a sudden, we got a request from a huge company that wanted to buy 2,000 licenses. Um, and we were like, oh, my God, what's happening? Where is this coming from? Um, this is never, you know, we didn't really even know how to do enterprise pricing. We were Googling for enterprise contracts. <laughs> we didn't have a lawyer. We didn't have, you know, we just really were not ready to do any of this. But super, it like reinvigorated all of our energy around trying to make this into an amazing business. Um, so we went down the path of contract negotiation with this big company um, to get them set up with 2000 licenses. And a big part of that was we just didn't have a lot of um, infrastructure in place to support a large organization yet. So we had to build out like an admin portal to manage teams and accounts. We had to build out single sign-on. We had all of these things that this company wanted us to build as part of this contract that was actually in a lot of ways forcing us to an actual product market fit that we just didn't have before. I think it was a, it was a cool way for us to learn and experiment um, in both of our areas of expertise. But for uh, up until this point in time, a lot of what we were doing was, was playing. Um, I would get ideas and want to try something. John would get ideas and want to try something different. And so um, until we had this big enterprise deal staring, staring us down um, with all these custom requests, it really helped us see what do we need uh, to sell into these large organizations going forward. So it was, I, I think we didn't really find our product market fit until just last year. So going into this year, so we are part of the 2020 um, Tiny Seed cohort. And um, we've had a bunch of, of great things happen this year. So we've been able to focus on, on this business full time now. Um, we have been able to invest in marketing, which we had never spent any money on in the past. We've gone down the road of getting um, a lot of security things shored up that we hadn't done in the past. And we're on track to close two more large enterprise deals this year. We've closed three smaller enterprise deals um, since coming on um, or since the beginning of 2020. So we're on track to hit uh, 10K MRR hopefully next month and expect to close those two enterprise deals before the year is over. And that will pretty much double where we're at in terms of MRR. So we're super excited. This path has been kind of a crazy road for us of um, a lot of ups and downs. And it was interesting to hear Sherry talk because I was thinking about some of that emotional roller coaster that you feel of um, being super excited and having a ton of wind in your sails and having that totally knocked out of you. Um, uh, you know, a couple days later, it is a lot of up, ups and downs, but we feel like now we're really on this great trajectory. And a lot of that came from landing that big enterprise deal that helped us sort out um, what do big companies want and what do they need. And for our particular SaaS model, um, that's that's the business, that's the the um, sale that we want to go after. We want to really target these large enterprises. 
Um, there's a lot of easy ways and, and other free tools available that are in our space for small teams, um, but there's not a lot available that helps big organizations connect these problems across the organization the way that Scatterspoke does. So we're super excited. That's everything I've got. Oh, one more. Um, and that's what's what's next for us. So going into 2021, we're continuing to focus on these large enterprises and really trying to find alignment with um, some different agile frameworks, things like scaled agile. Um, there's a couple new players in the market around different frameworks for large organizations going through transformation efforts. Um, another big focus for us going into 2021 is integrations. So we're, we've already got thing, we've got integrations with Slack and with Jira. Um, we're going to focus heavily on adding a lot more um, integrations to that list going into next year and continuing to target these, these big enterprise contracts. That's everything I've got. That's our road to 10K MRR. We'll go ahead and kick it back to you, Rob. All right, thank you so much, Colleen. We are gonna have um, some audience questions coming through. And before we do that, uh, I have a couple for you. So I appreciate your thoughts on mall rats. <laughs> However, <laughs> so Kevin Smith's first film was Clerks and it was oh. a black and white film that he made for like 25K of credit card debt. Yeah, and so I, I own, I'm like the, the comic book nerd. So I own, the, I think they call it the unholy trilogy, right? It's like mall rats, chasing Amy and, uh, and dogma. Um, and he's another one that like didn't ask for permission, you know, and he went off and started his own podcast network because he got tired of kowtowing to uh, to Hollywood. So all rats. What was the budget for mall rats? I think it was a quarter million dollars. Oh, yeah, it was pretty small. I mean, no, 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 that's actually incorrect. Mall rats was like five or six million. And he didn't like having so much money because he had to blow it. And then he when he came back to make Chasing Amy, he made it for a quarter million dollars. And that was, again, it was like he preferred to be that scrappy bootstrapper to not be on the hook for that huge budget and feel all the pressure. It's kind of like raising venture capital, right? You raise yeah. 10 million versus, you, you know, you bootstrap or you raise 100K. It's like such a different, such a different game. Have you seen Clerks? Yes, definitely. I've seen them all. What do you, Dogma. What do you like, mall rats or Clerks? I like mall rats better than Clerks, but Dogma is definitely my favorite. Yeah, yeah, I think mine too. Uh, Producer Xander, could I get a little more of Colleen in my monitor? I'm having trouble hearing her a little bit. All right, so I'm curious. Um, oh, we have a, awesome. I was going to start asking you my questions, but I'd love to get live questions from the audience. So the first question from James McBrien. He says, what were the key changes that opened up the enterprise pipeline for you? You know, I'm, I don't know if I have a really solid answer here. We, um, I think starting to, so I started really doing a lot of public speaking in 2017 and speaking at conferences. We still, until this year, haven't spent any money on advertising that includes even just Google AdWords. Um, so all of our users and all of our traffic came from um, presenting at conferences, word of mouth, people seeing reviews on different networks um, or hearing other, you know, other coaches or scrum masters talking about what do you use for retros. Um, so I think a lot of what opened up that opportunity for us enterprise wise has been um, these tight knit communities. And, and Corinne talked about this, too, of like finding your audience, finding who are the people that are the ones going to search for a tool so that, they, that you can really target having a presence in that in that space. And so for us, that's a lot of things. LinkedIn is like Facebook for agile coaches. It's kind of funny. 
Um, and then there's a lot of different forums that are very specific to agile practices and how to run great retros where we've um, made sure that we are, our voice is heard in those forums too. So I, people just have found us through things like that. Very cool. And I'm curious, um, you talked about the competition that started springing up and charging in, uh, well, I can't see your slide, but I forget if it was 2017 or 18 timeframe. Was that, you, you mentioned it was motivating. Um, was it also intimidating a bit or was it only positive for you? Oh my God, it's still intimidating. <laughs> that, that hasn't gone away. And I think I, you know, it's been, it's been interesting because we came out with like $39 a month plan and then we dropped it to 29 and then we dropped it to 25. And at one point, you know, before we signed that big contract, we were like, let's just make it $19 a month. We've been all over the place in terms of what to charge and what does that include? Um, and even just pushed out some new changes in April around our pricing. Um, I think that's been a good lesson in part of the Tiny Seed Mentor program is that, that that's okay. And that's a normal kind of journey for a startup to take is to continue to play around with that pricing. But um, we spent a lot of time initially looking at our competitors and saying, you know, what do we have that they have or what do they have that we don't have and how do we price according to, to what they've got? Um, I think not until this year would I say that we've gotten to the point where we don't care. <laughs> we don't care what they have or what they're charging. I think we have a pretty good understanding of what we offer and, and what the value there is, um, especially knowing that it's an enterprise that's paying for it, right? It's not, it's not often somebody pulling out their own credit card um, to pay for our tool. So knowing right. that we're, yeah. Keep going, keep going with that. Yeah, so knowing that it's like a big enterprise that's writing a, a check for an entire year of service or license seats, it's kind of changed our approach to what we charge. And I think that that's given us a little bit more confidence in where we're at now. And I think more flexibility in continuing to change it going forward. Yeah, and that's such a big, I mean, a part of the, a key part of what you just said is you used to be really concerned about what your competitors were pricing and how they were arranging that. And now you're kind of confident that you're doing the right thing based on your customers. That's such a part of product market fit that people don't realize or don't talk about is once you have the confidence in, um, in what you're doing and what the feedback you're getting and it's just working and you're signing these big deals, that is, again, a component of you know, what I would, I would call product market fit. Because until you're starting to feel decent about your pricing, I don't, I don't think that you have that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to, I think it's hard, you know, we even had a, a huge company come to us at one point and ask for a quote for an enterprise contract. And when we provided them a number, um, the person on the, on the phone was like, I don't understand how you can charge that much. It's just a whiteboard tool. Like it's just sticky notes. And so we, you know, we got defensive, I think initially, and we were like, oh no, but here's all the other things it could do. And here's how it, it's useful. And then it was like, you know what? Um, thank you for your feedback and, you know, explore other options. And if you change your mind, come back to us. Um, so it's it's hard. The pricing game is a hard one to, I think, find find that groove and feel confident, like you said, that, that what you're offering matches up with what you're charging. Yep. Yeah. It's so easy to be so fragile. It's like, um, yeah, it's like your feelings or your ego are tied up in it. I mean, every time I've launched a new product or service or conference or accelerator or anything, it, it's just the first like five conversations you have when people don't like it. You're like, oh, no, this is never going to work. We can't possibly make this work. But, you know, obviously, obviously you do you're on the road to 10k here uh, we have a question from dominic taylor and he says how do you know when to leave the day job how do you think about that weighing that you know that because we all have responsibilities and everything yeah it's super hard i mean um actually joining tiny seed was the catalyst for us to be able to make that happen um i had 
I had branched off and started doing consulting, you know, under my own business uh, about two years ago. And that really helped me make the jump into making Scatterspoke our full-time, you know, our full-time business. So we started to tiptoe into other ways, I think, to supplement income to get us there. And now my husband's full-time on this as well, but it's, it's hard. I mean, I think that there's, there's all these things, right. Of understanding what your threshold is, um, feeling like you have enough socked away in case things don't work out for a couple months. I mean, for, I would say up until 2019, we were spending more just on like hosting and emailing services than we were ever making on the tool. So it's been pretty new to be um, even marginally profitable, let alone to the point where we could um, thinking about supporting our family this way. So taking the tiny seed investment definitely helped us get there, even though we've been spending that on other things as well. But I think there's a lot of personal factors that go into that around what your threshold is for for risk and what does your day job look like, right? I mean, that was a big factor for me of, um, you know, at any time I can jump back into coaching and teaching and helping helping agile teams. And so I think you also have to weigh what the climate looks like for the industry that you're in so that if you need to, if you need to go back, that option's on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, I think the, there's probably three or four cases where I think of people leaving or the road to leaving the day job. One is, and I know I have friends and colleagues who've done exactly these. One is you save up enough money that you don't need to work for 18 months and then you try to do it. And that's a little scary and most people can't do it, but that's one way. Another is to raise a small amount of funding to cover yourself for the 12 to 18 months. Um, another is to stair step your way up and either use products, other products or use consulting to kind of transition that. And the fourth one really is to have a partner, you know, a supportive partner who's kind of willing to support you doing that. So it's figuring out other streams of revenue um, to do it. And then knowing your own, you know, some people are willing, the story of like customer.io, they had almost no revenue and they like both quit their day jobs. And that would freak me the hell out. Like I didn't do, I mean, I had eight grand a month coming in before I quit my day job and it was enough to cover the mortgage and all this stuff. And that, I think it just depends on maybe risk tolerance, you know? Yeah. And I think that's compounded, right? When it's a husband and wife um, founder situation, because it's like, if this fails, we're both out of a job. So right. there's some yeah, interesting it's, pressure added by that. Absolutely. All right. Another question from George I. Nikolev. He says, what was, this is a tough one, actually. I'm curious to hear your take. What was the key to nailing down product market fit for you? Um, honestly, listening, you know, I think this is, I think one of the things that's been kind of challenging in, in building this product is I am super close to the users and super, I am the demographic, right. That we're selling to. So I get excited and I get all these ideas about things that I want to build and that I want to do and that I want to see. Um, and I think when we go down that path often, especially, you know, I get excited about the features. My husband gets excited about the technology and starts building all these things. And, you know, it takes us, then we end up with like a six month release, which is not really very agile when you think about it. It's not what we coach other people to do. Um, we build these huge releases that take forever to get out the door. And we're doing, you know, a Hail Mary once we put those out to find out if it's stuff that people like. Um, and honestly, like production is the most expensive place you can test out an idea. So one of the things that I think has really helped us is not building so much stuff until people ask for it. And that that enterprise deal that we got at the beginning of 2019 really set us up for that. Um, we had to shelve a bunch of stuff that we were excited to build and listen to what they wanted us to add to the tool in order to support a 2,000 person organization. 
and that, you know, it kind of changed things for us and also helped us going forward with other contracts. So now when we go to the table and start to work with these large enterprises, one of the first things we ask is, are there things that aren't in the tool that you're interested in having added to the tool? And even if it's, you know, we've had, we have a recent one that was a laundry list of stuff. And when we came to them with a price to add it all, they said, just add this one thing. Um, but now we have a, you know, we have a whole backlog of other things they'd like to see added that are probably things other organizations want added too. So a big part of it, I think, has just been listening, like finding who who's our optimal customer and listening to their needs. Yep, very nice. All right, a reminder to folks in uh in remote, um, click the question button and submit your own question if you have any questions for Colleen. We have uh, almost another five minutes to go. I have another question, um, this one from Jack Dempsey. How have you navigated the challenges of being married to your co-founder? Any <laughs> tactics, strategies, or principle to help, principles to help make this work? Good question. Yeah. Well, lots more Coors Light, clearly. We're in Colorado, so <laughs> that helps. Um, no, in, in all honesty, I think some of the things that we've really figured out help us are um, things that I think would help any co-founder, like co-founders. We try to, um, we use JIRA for our work. We have a Kanban board where we track priorities. We use that with our contractors, um, whether it's marketing folks now or dev folks. Um, we try to communicate in Slack a lot, even though we're sitting usually two feet apart from each other. So we use Slack for everything so that we can see what each other's communicating, especially when it's like third-party contractors, so that I know if he's told the developer, you don't have to build this thing. Um, that way I don't yell at him later. <laughs> and then we also block off times. We block off different times during the week where we either look at the backlog together, or we look at our metrics together, um, because I think it can be like we both get, like I said, we both get excited about the things that we're passionate about and kind of go down different paths. And we've, we've had that bite us in the ass before where we're both going so far away from what each other's working on because we assume we're, you know, we assume because we're in the same house, we're going down the same road and, and we're not. And so we try to um, going into this year, set up some more regular check-ins where we're making sure that we're working together on the same things and our priorities are lining up um, and that the kids aren't there. <laughs> we have three kids. So it's, it's chaos here right now with kids being home from school and daycares being closed. So um, it's, I think that makes it even more important to carve out specific time to take care of those tasks on a regular basis. Sounds like lots of communication. Yeah. We have a question from Hector de Pereda and he says, how do you decide to target small business, small and medium sized businesses versus big corporations as a bootstrapped company? In your experience, which are the pros and cons of each? Um, so for us, I think we still target those small, small to medium businesses, and we we have a lot of them using the tool now. And I would say a lot of those kind of tend to sit in the like hundred user seat type of bucket. Um, the organization might be bigger, but it tends to be like 100 licenses that they're looking for. Um, and they're awesome to work with. We get a ton of feedback from them. I think, you know, we're getting to the point now where we've got a few small, small, medium sized businesses where we can kind of experiment with them. So like we're, we're, we're pushing out a beta version of a canvas board that's more like a whiteboard um, where you can post things and they're not in columns and it'll still pull all that, you know, pull all of that back into our analytics. And um, we can push that now out to some of these smaller businesses and, and test it with them and get feedback from them. And that's a cool relationship to have that I think would be a little harder to do when there's 2000, you know, 2000 users. Um, but for us, you know, a lot of 
and and they tend to onboard quicker. I would say that's the other piece with small to medium business businesses is it's pretty self-service. They can kick that off. There's not a long contract. So we love that part of it. It's kind of instant revenue. <laughs> Enterprises tend to take a long time. I mean, these can be like up to six months of back and forth legal, security reviews. Um, but once we do finally close those, I mean, it like like I said, it'll two enterprise deals doubles our MMR where we're at right now. So um, I think that's the other part that's kind of you know from a from a focus perspective, we want to keep focusing on these enterprise deals because they're they're um, a lot more lucrative and then they're usually a year long contract if not three. So that tends to be another piece that these big companies want to buy a tool for for like a three year minimum. Um, so once we go through the long road to get there, we're, we're really locked into that revenue for a decent amount of time. Yeah, I think that's good perspective. I mean, the, the sales cycles are really long with enterprise, but man, the churn is just, almost, they don't want to change unless there's a real problem. They sign these long contracts. And there's this other thing I'll say versus going after small, medium versus enterprise is if you can build a business that actually has a, I call it a dual funnel where you have people coming in paying a low price and high volume and you can build it like a nice brand, but then you also have the enterprises coming in, that's an amazing business. Those are the ones I see growing the fastest. So Drip was like that, where we had a $50 starter plan, but we had people coming in paying us $1,000 a month when they had a huge list. Uh, Squadcast, who we'll hear from a little later, you know, it's podcast recording. And they, of course, have the fly fisherman who's paying them $15 a month. And then you might have a huge, you know, uh, you can imagine like a podcast network coming in and paying them thousands a month. Those funnels are, are really quite amazing. So, all right, Colleen, thank you so much. We're at time. I really appreciate you coming on to MicroConf Remote today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Hope you enjoyed that talk from Colleen Johnson on how Scatterspoke made it to 10K MRR. And join us next Tuesday for our next MicroConf Refresh episode where we look at another segment from MicroConf Remote 2020.